All right, let's get started then. Um, welcome everybody on this warm afternoon. Um, we're beginning chapter five. If you're following in your notes, um, uh, we're in that that section where Jesus has been in Galilee. Now he's beginning. He will withdraw. As you're going to see, he's going to on the other side into uh, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. I'll talk about that in a minute. You might want to have in front of you on page five the map of the Galilee region around the Sea of Galilee because the map is going to help us to understand where is Jesus when Mark is recording these events that, that we're, we're going to see in chapter 5. So if you have that out, that would be helpful too. All right, so let's get started. Beginning then in verse 1 of chapter 5, then they came, that they would be Jesus and the disciples. They came to the other side of the sea. Now the sea, of course, is the Sea of Galilee. As I've said many times, it's really not a sea, it's a lake, 13 miles long, um, seven miles wide. Uh, it's approximately 600 feet below sea level. It's a highly unusual lake in the, in the sense of lakes on planet Earth. But when they say to the other side, uh, when Mark says the other side, he means the eastern side, the country of the Gerasenes. Now, if you take a look at your map, again, if you don't want to follow this, that's fine. But I did give you that resource on page five. Currently, he's on the eastern side. If you don't know directions, it would be the right side of the Sea of Galilee. And let your eye just go down that east side until you see Kersi, K-U-R-S-I. And underneath it, in parentheses, Gergesa. That's where Jesus is. I've been there many times. It's on a cliff. It looks down a very, very steep embankment down to the Sea of Galilee. And to your right, if you stand there, to your right, you can see a whole string of caves. That's going to be important because of, of what happens here at Kersey. There's a tiny little village, and I want to make one other comment about this. On the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, this is not Jewish territory. Most of the people that live here are Gentiles. They're part of what was called the Decapolis. Decapolis is the Greek word, which means an area of ten cities. And that's, that's very important to remember this, that where Jesus is, he's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He's in primarily Gentile territory. This is not Judea. This is not Galilee. This is on the eastern side. These are Gentiles. The vast, there are some Jews, but the vast majority of the people that live here, and they're very much under the Greco-Roman influence. And there are reasons for that historically, which unless you really want me to go into it, I'm not going to explain. Well, okay, that's just the geography of it. If you're not interested in that, that's fine. But if you are, I want you to have an understanding of where the Lord is and kind of where this this Kersey, this Gergesene, Gergesa, all of these are synonymous of the same area. Again, these are Gentile people primarily. Verse 2, and when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And again, as I said a moment ago, if you ever go there and you get off the bus, you look to your right, you just see a whole string of tombs. I mean, it's very clear. The geography of this is unmistakable in terms of, of where Jesus is. Speaking of this man, verse 3, he lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And so Mark is going to, and this is unusual for Mark, Mark is going to great detail here to explain the severity of this man's demon possession. When the phrase unclean spirit is used, that is a, a reference to, to, uh, to demon possessed. These are unclean spirits. These are demons. And so you see, and let me explain this, this is theologically quite important. You see the goal of demon, the goal of Satan, the goal of Satan's evil 
evil plans, to destroy, to deface an image bearer of God. I mean, what this man is doing, just think of the life he lives now. The Bible here in this point says it has nothing to say about how this happened to him, when he became demon-possessed, why did he get into demon possession? That's not the point. This is where the man is now. And he is, he is, this is so severe that he's even defacing his own body by cutting himself with stones. Horribly decrepit, debilitating, disgusting example of demon possession. Verse 6, so that's the state of this man. And when he saw Jesus from afar, this would be the demon-possessed man, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. All right, let's, let's stop for a moment and think about what this demon-possessed man, so in a, in a very real sense, this is the demons speaking. They are in such control of this man that they're controlling his speech. Now, I want you to notice two things about what he says. First of all, how does he address Jesus? What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Now, the phrase, the Most High God, is a common Old Testament title for God. You can look at Genesis chapter 14. You can look at Numbers chapter 24. You can look at Isaiah chapter 14 as examples. So this demon, it's actually, you'll see in a moment, it's multiple demons inside this man. They are confessing who Jesus is. I one time studied under a man who said, no demon is an atheist. Demons are not atheists. Satan is not an atheist. They know who God is, they know who Jesus is, they know what he represents. And so they are confessing with clear, there's no ambiguity to what they're saying here, confessing clearly who he is. I want you to notice the second thing, I adjure you, that's ESV, is a translation I read from, I adjure you, that's not a real common word for many of you. Another way to translate that, I swear to you. I ask you to swear to me. I ask you to make a vow to me. Do not torment me. I'm not real pleased with that translation, torment. You could translate that torture. You could trans trans translate that severe judgment. These demons are thinking about their final judgment, their final punishment, their final destiny. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. They will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. And so these demons, one, recognize who Jesus is. There's no lack of clarity there. And number two, they're asking him to make a vow. Don't torture us in the eternal fire to which we are destined. So, again, I mean, it, it's really astonishing to me that you have the Pharisees and the scribes questioning who Jesus is, doubting who Jesus is. We've talked about that quite a bit in our study so far of Mark. And here you have demonic hosts clearly, clearly identifying who Jesus is. For he, now notice verse, verse 8, for he was saying to them, the verb tense there is imperfect, which means Jesus is saying this over and over and over again. I, and saying to them, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, I'm, I'm quite sure you've heard this, but the term legion in the Greco-Roman world was the reference to the way in which the Roman army was organized. It was organized into legions. There were multiple legions about 14 legions all over the world. There were six legions in the Eastern Mediterranean world at the time of Jesus. The, a legion is, is about 6,000 Roman soldiers. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean there are 6,000 demons in this man, because that clarified, because it says 
for we are many. And so the point is not the number. The point is this man has multiple demons in, in, in his body. So it's, it's just a, a horrific picture of a man being defaced and destroyed, an image bearer of the living God being destroyed by Satan. What does Jesus then do? Verse 10, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and if you ever go there, you can clearly see where they would have been feeding. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirit came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, Mark's being very specific there, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. And so we have the Lord giving permission to these demons to inhabit these pigs, and they actually end up killing all the pigs. If they cannot destroy the human being, the man, they will destroy pigs. Again, this is, an, this is illustrative of how Satan and his demonic host look at God's physical world. They want to destroy. They want to produce chaos. They want to produce destruction. God will not allow them to kill this man. Jesus will not allow them to kill this man, but Jesus does allow them. And part of the reason the Lord allows this is in the next explained in the next paragraph, which I'll get to in just a moment. So you have here another one of the examples, and Mark, Mark does this frequently, as does Matthew. Jesus is on earth representing the kingdom of God, challenging the authority of Satan, the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, leading the rebellion against God on this planet. Jesus has invaded this. Jesus is here to proclaim the kingdom of God. What we pray for in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's what Jesus is doing. So he's plundering Satan's kingdom. And so you see it here in a powerful, illustrative way that Jesus is showing Satan his demonic hosts for what they really are. They are not here for man's good. They're here for man's destruction. They're here for evil. They want to deface, deform, destroy the image bearers of God. And that's what's happening here. And so Jesus, the authoritative son of God, insists they come out of the man, but permits them to destroy animals. Both illustrate Satan is interested in destruction, chaos, and harming God's good earth that he created. And so it's, it's a powerful illustration of the forces of evil versus the forces of righteousness, Jesus versus Satan. Now, before we look at the next paragraph, which explains, I think, one of the reasons why the Lord allows this. Do you have any questions? I mean, this isn't difficult, but do you have any questions? before we move on. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, Jim, I was just wondering, because he says an unclean spirit met him, Jesus Christ, and then then we have legions. So I was confused about that. It, it seems like there's more than one spirit in a man, I guess. Well, that is true, but we don't we don't learn how many there are or the depths of this man's degradation until the Lord asks Jesus, that is, asks him that question, asks the question in verse 9, to reveal publicly how serious is this man's demon possession. It isn't just one unclean spirit, it's multiple unclean spirits. Remember something else that we um, said this before, the main source for Mark when he wrote his gospel was Peter. And this probably reflects the testimony of Peter. When we saw this man, as we got off the boat on the Sea of Galilee and walked up the hill and to the graves, this man came. So we assumed, as it states, he has an unclean spirit. It's only after the probing of Jesus in a public way that they discover there's more than one. There are many. And the, new, the number is significant because they kill a whole herd of sheep. And so it's a, this progressive 
there's progressively revealing and understanding how severe is this man's condition. Only Jesus can demonstrate how severe this man's condition is, and only Jesus can solve this man's problem, his demon possession. Again, it's, it's kind of the literary way in which they progressively reveal what is going on. Okay. All right, verse 14 through 20. We're, we're still in the same area. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now, I want you to observe two things. Number one, this man is totally transformed by Jesus. Where he had been in utter agony, even cutting himself and destroying himself because of the demonic host, now he's transformed. That's what Jesus is always about, transforming people. Taking them from their destitute situation to the redeemed I'm in the family of God, I'm cleansed, I'm in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. This, for people who lived in this area, in the area called the Decapolis, that's the, it's the area then, as I mentioned a moment ago, this would have been, oh my goodness, this man, we've seen him multiple times. We've seen him raging, and we tried to shackle him, we tried to chain him, and every time he broke the chains, Here's this man, no longer naked, no longer defacing his body, clothed in his right mind, sitting next to Jesus, hearing him teach. The second response, they were afraid. And that word, it's, we get a word phobia, phobos, for afraid. I mean, is this a worshipful fear, or is this, they're genuinely afraid. I'm not sure. It, it, it doesn't seem to me, and from the rest of the paragraph, that this is worshipful. But if you look at verse 16, and those who had seen it described in them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus, depart from their region. Get out. Leave. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. He did not permit him that he would be Jesus, did not permit him, the, the demon, former demon-possessed man, but said, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and that he and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Now note again that phrase in verse 20, the Decapolis. That's the region of ten cities. They are Greco-Roman cities that the Roman Empire under Pompey uh, earlier before Christ had established as a buffer for the Roman Empire against the Parthian Empire to the to the east. So this is a very strategic area. So what what is Jesus doing here? Because this man begged, let me be one of your disciples. I want to go with you. I want to be with you. Jesus says, no, here's the assignment. Go throughout Decapolis and proclaim what has happened. So this man's a missionary. This man's an evangelist. And I want you to notice something else. It's very important. Jesus says to him in verse 19, go home to your friends and tell how much the Lord has done for you. And then look at the next verse. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And they marveled. Now, that's important. You can skip over that and maybe miss that. But that is really important because the Lord, it's kurios in Greek, is a title for God. And then in the next verse, how much Jesus had done for him. In my Bible, what I did is I underlined how much the Lord, and I undermined how much Jesus, underlined both and connected them with an arrow, because this is another subtle but very clear affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. This is, it's, it's subtle. You can miss it, 
by just a cursory reading, but as you read it, it's, oh my, I see what's going on here. How much the Lord, normal title for God in the New Testament, how much Jesus, exactly the same grammatical structure that you connect it to. This is an affirmation of the deity of Jesus. Tim, I got a question. Yes. Um, why did they ask Jesus to leave? Were they just that much in fear or they just they did not believe uh they just couldn't understand what was going on uh what do you think about that well i think uh you in your questions you really answered your own question but to, to put it i think in the context what do you one of the things that jesus demonstrates here by allowing those demons to go into the animals and and this this picture of this man now utterly transformed these people cared more about their animals than they did a man who is completely healed and transformed it says something about their value system it says something about their their heart it says something about are they really understanding what is going on before their very eyes because woody when you see something like this, you only have two choices. Choice number one, this man must be from God. This is a miracle that is only explained by something supernatural. And because Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, his miracles prove who he is. Your other choice is to harden your heart and reject who this man is. Which choice did they make? They made the choice. Regardless of what we've seen, regardless of the evidence, we do not want to embrace him. So leave us. Get out of our country. We don't want anything to do with you. And so what does Jesus leave behind? He leaves behind the evidence. He leaves behind the evidence of who he is a transformed man, and says to this man, go tell everyone in the Decapolis region how much Jesus has done for you, how much the Lord has done for you. He would have been fairly well known in the sense that his behavior was so extreme, he even when they tried to chain him, broke the chains. This man transformed is going to have credibility. And so it's in the midst of the hardness of the hearts of these this little small community at Kersey, these sheep herders, these, 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 these farmers, instead of them listening, they were going, they're going to listen to this man who's transformed. And so Jesus leaves, but he leaves a witness. He leaves a testimony as to who he is. Now, what the Bible does not do, because we will not hear anything more about him until we get to heaven and we have a chance to talk to him. But I would imagine that his impact in the Decapolis region was significant because he is living testimony. Something has happened to me. And you only have two explanations. Either God did this in a miracle or you're going to harden your heart and reject it. And today, I mean, I've had people look me in the eyes and say, I don't, care, I don't care what your gospel says or what your gospel proclaims. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. Please stop talking to me about him. Okay, there's a person. Instead of wanting to engage in a conversation, look at the evidence, consider the evidence who Jesus is, the hardness of their heart, they reject it. I don't want anything to do. Don't talk to me anymore about him. Well, the hounds of heaven are going to leave that man alone. They're going to keep after him. But that's, that's the whole mystery of the human will versus the immensity of evidence as to who Jesus is. So that's a long answer to your question, Woody, but that's the best I can do with that. Very good. Thank you. Who are the hounds of heaven, Jim? Well, the hounds of heaven are, is a metaphor that an old Baptist preacher used <laughs> to talk about how the Lord Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, works on us and all of his ambassadors who are talking to others about him, and that would be you, and that would be me, or actually, I should say that would be I, it's a predicate nominative. 
Okay, shall we move on? Now, verse 21 of chapter 5, through the end of the chapter, verse 43, we see another one of the sandwich literary devices that Mark likes to use. Now, I hope you remember I talked about that before. So you'll see in verse 21 through 24, the piece of bread. Then verse 35 through 43, the second piece of bread. In between is the meat. So what Mark does is he starts a narrative, and as the narrative is unfolding, interjects something else, and when that something else is done, goes back to the original narrative. So let's look at this. It's just a literary device. If you're not interested in that, don't worry about it. But it's something, it's one of Mark's favorite literary devices as he writes. Now, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, now, you should have the geography now pretty straight. He's been on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He's going to go across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. He'll be in the west or kind of northwest area of the Sea of Galilee. Now, that's all he tells us. A great crowd gathered, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. All right, now, that's the first piece of bread. Jesus is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, a key spiritual leader of the community. Mark even gives us his name, Jairus, comes to Jesus and pleads with Jesus, my daughter is near death, come here. Now, as Jesus is moving toward this man's house, toward Jairus's house, you now get to the meat of the sandwich. That begins at the end of verse 24. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. Now, Let's stop there for just a minute. I want you to try to get the picture now. Try to get in your mind's eye what this would have looked like. Mark is very clear. A, an immense crowd of people have thronged Jesus. They are absolutely overwhelming Jesus as he heads toward Jairus' house. One of the people in that crowd is a woman. Now, Mark says four things about this woman. Number one, she's had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, the nature of this, is, there's a lot of debate about exactly what the problem is. Some kind of menstrual issue, some, some kind of, 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 of difficulty that is causing her to have this discharge of blood. But now listen to me. In the Jewish culture, because Jesus is now back on the west side, now where Jews live, she's ceremonially unclean. That's an important thing to remember. She's ceremonially unclean. The second thing we learn, she had suffered much under many physicians. So this woman, for 12 years, has tried to get someone to help her. She spent all of her money. That's the third thing you see. She spent, all the, she spent all of her money on getting doctors to try to help her. And the fourth thing we learn, none of it mattered. She's not any better. As a matter of fact, she's worse. So whatever the specific nature of her physical condition, it was debilitating. It made her ceremonially unclean. It had taken all of her money and she was not better. She was actually worse. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus. Remember, we've learned this in the study of Mark. 
the, the word about Jesus, what he's doing and what he's teaching is spreading through all of Galilee. She's heard it. And so she comes, came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Now remember, the crowds are swarming Jesus. So she came up to Jesus and she did one thing. She just touched his garments, touched his robe. Verse 28, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. She'd heard the reports about Jesus. She was in a devastating, debilitating, horrible situation. Utterly, literally without hope. But what does verse 28 indicate? She had faith. She believed what she had heard about Jesus. She believed who he was and what he was doing. Verse 29, and immediately, there's Mark's favorite word, he uses it 42 times in his gospel, immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. The word there, felt, I'm not sure that's a great translation, because it's gnosko, it means she knew. She knew specifically that she had been healed of her disease. Now, verse 30, Mark switches to Jesus. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Now, let's stop there for just a minute. Jesus is God. He's the incarnate God. He's the God-man. When he says, who touched my garments, he doesn't know. Is Jesus seeking information he doesn't have? Is his omniscience compromised here? Or does he ask that question as a teachable moment for his disciples? Because their response, if you look at verse 31, the disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. So I am suggesting that when Jesus asks that question, who touched me, it isn't because he needs information he doesn't have. He's asking this question as for a didactic reason, a teachable moment for his disciples, a teachable moment for her to confess her faith for the disciples and indeed the crowds to see as well. And that that wonderful word that the woman, verse 33, but the woman knowing what had happened to her came in fear, phobomai, awe, reverence, trembling fell down before him and told him the whole truth. So she told him her story. She told him what had happened. She told him she had heard about him heard about his teaching, heard about his miracles. She believed she had faith. Even if I touch him, he can make me well. And he did. Notice the Lord's response in verse 34. And he said to her daughter. This is the only time Jesus Christ uses this in the gospel accounts. The only time. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace, be healed of your disease. Now, in what sense is she his daughter? This woman is now in the family of God. That's why Jesus can refer to you and me as brother. We refer to one another as brothers in Christ. We're in the family of God. So this is an extraordinary, really, really remarkable affirmation by Jesus Christ 
You put your faith in me. Your relationship with God changes. You're no longer condemned sinner to judge of the universe. You're now a daughter in Christ, and God is your heavenly Father. You come to Christ, you're now a brother, and, you're, and God is your heavenly Father. So it's, it's just extraordinary. It, it's an incredible, incredible explanation of the transformation of this woman. Because the key is transformation. We saw it with the demon-possessed man. We see it now with this woman. She is transformed. No longer with this debilitating, horrible disease which made her ceremonially unclean. She's now a daughter in the family of God because her faith had made her well. She believed what she'd heard. She believed who Jesus was, and she's transformed. And so it's a, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic story of what Jesus is all about, transformation. So that's the meat of this sandwich. Begins with a piece of bread. Jairus's daughter is ill near death. Jairus asks Jesus to come. As he's making his way to Jesus' home, this extraordinary miracle of this woman for 12 years having this debilitating disease which made her ceremony unclean is now transformed. She's a daughter in the family of God. Then we come back to the second piece of bread, which completes the story of Jairus. Verse 35. Jim, one question quick. Oh, yeah. One question quick. Um, yeah, please. So, did they use the same word fear as they did up above with yes, disciples a, on the boat? It's a derivative, but it, they both come from the word phobia, yes. So are we to just take the look at the contextual response of Jesus? That's right. And understand that it's a, a, a selfish fear that we're going to die versus uh, a, a reverential fear. That's um, right. Okay. That's right. Yes. When, when it speak, uh, when the term fear is used of a, in a believer's life or of a believer, it's, it's a worship word. It really is. It's a worshipful response of awe and reverence and devotion, etc., to who God is or whatever the circumstance is. But you're, you're, you're absolutely right, Glenn. The context helps us understand how we interpret the, the word phobia, phobiamai, or the various derivatives of the same word, in the New Testament helps us to understand which which way should we understand this and when we interpret it and we try to understand the response. All right, 35 now. Now this is the second piece of bread if you're following the sandwich. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Now, it's really interesting here because Mark is very clear in helping us to understand this is all one unit. And so as Jesus is finishing his speaking to this woman, whom he calls daughter, the, someone, a servant, presumably from the ruler's house, Jairus's house, says, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now, there, <laughs> there is not an example of faith, there's an example of desperation. Look, it, it's now futile to have Jesus come to the house. Your daughter's dead. Accept it. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Now there, Glenn, is another illustration. How's that word being used there? Fear as terror, desperation, tremendous anxiety. Don't let that overcome you, Jairus. Believe. Now think, think of the contrast. You had this woman with a 12-year menstrual issue. She believed. She had faith. Now you have Jairus, a synagogue leader, well-educated, presumably somewhat affluent, his daughter has died. Another daughter's just been rescued and saved. And Jesus, it's the same point. What is your response going to be, Jairus? Fear, desperation, extreme anxiety, or faith? 
Verse 37, and he allowed no one to, the he there is Jesus, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. This is that inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, the Lord is saying something here. From his perspective, as the incarnate God, he knows what he is going to do. So from his divine perspective, this young lady, this young girl is not dead. She's sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, Peter, James, and John, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talita kumi, that's Aramaic, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. In verse 42, immediately, there's his favorite word, immediately the girl got up and began walking. She was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So you, you have a number of things going on here. I would remind you again among other things, Jesus does his miracles to reveal who he is, to confirm that he is the Messiah, and so on, but also to teach truth. So he te takes Peter, James, and John with him. They just saw that miracle with that woman who was a 12-year menstrual issue now, and saw what happened to her. Now they see this. The second thing I want you to observe, it's, it's, it's probably coincidental, but maybe by God's providence. The woman whom he healed as he's making a way to Jairus's house had that menstrual condition for 12 years. The little girl that he brought back from the dead was 12 years old. Interesting, interesting, both 12 years. And the third thing I want you to observe, why does Jesus say at the end of the passage, verse 43, that no one should know about this? And you think, no, wait a minute. I thought this is what it's all about. <laughs> but Jesus, Jesus is very discreet. He does not do miracles to show off. Every miracle has a context. Every miracle has a purpose. He is not interested in a dog and pony show. He is not interested in gathering crowds just for the fantastic that's why he only took Peter, James, and John into the house, along with the mom and dad. He is not interested in swelling the crowd. He's interested in people who will consider who he is, what he's done, and respond in faith. He's not interested in doing fantastic things, like I said some, somewhat humorously. He's not doing a dog and pony show. And so it's interesting how Jesus will do this over and over again. And then he says something very practical, a very, very pragmatic, this little girl is hungry. She needs her body nourished. She's back to life. And Jesus gave this daughter back to his mom, her mom and dad. And it was in response to the challenge, don't fear. Only believe, verse 36. So the inference we are to draw is that he did respond in faith. He, Jairus, the, the synagogue leader, did respond in faith. And Jesus honored the faith. So you have in this fantastic chapter, chapter 5 is one of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of Mark, for the literary device of sandwich, but also the tremendous emphasis on faith brings transformation. That's what Jesus is all about. Put your faith in me. Trust me. 
And that begins our life with him as we're justified, enter the process of sanctification, which will end with the glorification when we receive our new bodies in the resurrected state. All right, chapter five, a great chapter. We spent a lot of time on it, but it's a fantastic chapter. Everybody with me? Yeah, one, one question is, is it, yeah. is it possible that he was asking them to keep quiet because he was not ready to, for the word to get out with that synagogue? Was he not ready to take on the Pharisees? It's interesting the timing where he's telling the Gentiles, go spread the word of what was done. But then he turns around here and he's telling uh, a leader in the Jewish community, nothing, don't say a word yet. So is that that he's just positioning the time and place to take on the Pharisees or what's what's going on? That is that is really an insightful contrast there, Glenn. I really appreciate you bringing that up. Because what he had said to the man who had been demon-possessed and so on there in the Gentile region, don't shut up. Tell everybody you possibly can. Proclaim it throughout the whole Decapolis. Whereas here in Galilee, presumably the North Shore there, uh, Jairus and everybody else, don't spread the word about this. And it's, what, what is Jesus doing? And I think in a way you were right. He is, going to, he is going to decide the time and the place for the final confrontation with the Pharisees. And that's all going to come as, as we get further into the book. Here, and this is, that's a great, great contrast that you're seeing as, as your insight and your question really, really showed. The contrast between these two areas, these two regions, these two groups of people, and how they're responding to Jesus. And I think the other thing maybe to add here, Glenn, is the expectation in Galilee and Judea of the Messiah was not a Messiah who would die for their sins. It was a Messiah that would liberate them from Roman oppression. And the, the, the way in which Jesus is carefully, methodically presenting himself, now he's in Galilee, is measured it's incremental. It's clear. I'm not doing this to swell the crowds. I want people to understand who I really am. And I'm not interested in people forcing, trying to force me to be the king, the Messiah. They have to accept who I am by faith. Their liberation will come on my time schedule, not their expectations. And so the, the contrast between Galilee, heavily populated by Jews, and the Decapolis, with very few Jews live, the Gentile region, is marked because the expectation among the Gentiles, they're not expecting Messiah. They don't read the prophets, but the Jews do. And that contrast is very important in this, in this, in this, uh, this chapter. Thank you for pointing that out. Does that, does that also have something to do with the audience there, Jammer? It does have everything to do with audience. Okay. That's exactly right. And the expectations of the audience. All right, what time is it here? Okay, we're good, we're okay. Now let's move into chapter six. We'll, we'll never get much of this done, but we'll get started with it. He went away from there and came to his hometown. Now that would be Nazareth. Remember his hometown is Nazareth, Capernaum, was where he set up his ministry in Galilee, but his hometown. It's about 20 miles, 20 miles to the kind of southwest of where they are. Nazareth is, uh, at that time, and even today, Nazareth is, was kind of a backwater town. It wasn't on the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't on a major road. So he's going home. He's going to Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Now, let's, let's stop here for just a minute and make sure that you understand the context here. Remember, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. His, father, his earthly father, Joseph, and Mary, they traveled there to register for the taxation under the governor Quirinius, who was a legate of, of Caesar Augustus. And then because of Herod, they fled down to Egypt, 
And then as they came back from Egypt, they head up to Nazareth. So Jesus, first roughly 30 years of his life were spent in Nazareth. This somewhat backwater town, a small community, it wasn't very large at all. Uh, it wasn't a, a, near the Sea of Galilee, or 20 some miles from the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't on a major road. This is a small community. So everyone knew Jesus. Everyone had seen Jesus grow. Everyone knew Jesus' family. And so Jesus comes to Nazareth, his hometown where he had grown up. Most people knew him. He went to high school there. He played football in Nazareth football team. Those last two sentences I made up. But in other words, he grew up here. And now he's in the synagogue and he's teaching. Now, if he's teaching in the synagogue, what do you think he's teaching? Well, in Luke chapter 4, which is probably the same account, what Jesus does is he reads from Isaiah chapter 51, sits down from his reading and said, Today, this is fulfilled in your presence. I mean, that's, that's absolutely astonishing. In effect, what Jesus is doing is, in his hometown, in the synagogue, in Nazareth, saying, I am the Messiah. Okay, now that's the context. Now look at verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and you, Judas and Simon are not his sisters with us? Now, all of those questions are rhetorical, but all of those questions indicate incredulity. This is incredible. Who is this guy? This is Joseph's boy. My kids played with him. This is the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. His brothers are listed. The end of Matthew chapter 13 is another listing of the brothers and sisters of Jesus. Now, I want you to think with me about something else. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Who's not mentioned here? Joseph. Man, this is an insult. They are playing on one of those rumors that must have accompanied the early years of Jesus' life. He was illegitimate. Now, if you go back and study Matthew, and you back and study, study Luke, and put the two together, Mary is betrothed to Joseph, engaged to Joseph. After Mary becomes pregnant, and you, you look particularly in Luke, Luke's account, the angel Gabriel comes, comes to Mary, announces she's going to give birth to the Messiah, etc. What does Mary do? She goes to her relative Elizabeth, and she spends several months there. And she comes back to Nazareth now, several months pregnant, visibly pregnant. What does Joseph immediately do? She's been unfaithful to me. And then go to Matthew chapter 1, his, Matthew's account. He prepares a bill of divorcement. Because he could either have insisted that Mary be stoned, or he divorces her. He wants to follow Deuteronomy 24. And the angel again, Gabriel, comes and says, no, 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 you can't do that. The woman you're about to marry is pregnant with, by the Holy Spirit with the Messiah. Call his name Jesus. And so now Joseph then brings Mary into his house, marries her. But Luke is very specific. They do not have sexual intercourse until after Jesus is born. I say all that because the rumor mill in Nazareth, the rumor mill in Nazareth had it, Jesus really isn't Joseph's boy. When she was away from town, she was with another man. And so that's telling us 
that part of what followed Jesus in his hometown was this, this horrible, horrible, hurtful rumor that he was illegitimate. So when they say the son of Mary, and don't even mention Joseph, it's an insult. It again is probing, not faith, but rejection and unbelief. And they took offense at him. And that, I'm at the end of verse 3, and they took offense at him. Again, that's a little bit awkward, but what that means is they are repelled by Jesus. They're offended by Jesus. What he, he is causing them to stumble. Instead of accepting in faith, what he is saying, Luke 4 tells us in detail what he said, 16 through 30. Here, you just Mark is just focusing on the response. And so you kind of get a little, this is Jesus' hometown. And how are they responding with this series of questions, bang, 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 that do not even evidence a little bit of belief? They evidence rejection and mocking and insulting him. And so if you want to find out how Jesus responds, you got to come back next week. There was a question. I think I so. I had a question, Jim. Uh, I was going to ask you, uh, uh, you said something about he was reading uh, from Isaiah, and then, um, and I don't have that in my Bible here, so I, I was assuming it was in another gospel story. It is. It's in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, which I think is a parallel count, it, it's the same count. Jesus is in Nazareth, his hometown. He's teaching in the synagogue, and Luke tells us he read from Isaiah 61, and it even quotes it there. And then Jesus sits down and says to them, today this is fulfilled in your presence. In other words, what he's really saying, I am the Messiah. Because <laughs> Isaiah 61 is one of the great messianic passages. And so, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. And so what Mark is focusing on, because all he says is teaching the synagogue. Then Mark's really interested in the detailed response. How are the people of Nazareth responding to Jesus? Well, we, we just went through some of that. Does that answer your question or clarify what you were looking for? Yes, what sure do you... Thank you so much. Oh, okay, good. All right. Now, I purposely, this was all by design. I wanted to end exactly at verse 3. That's not true. I had no idea we'd get to verse 3. But it sets us up well for next week. Because now, how does Jesus respond to this? Man, this had to be hurtful to Jesus. He knew these people. He grew up with these people. And they're responding with insults, uh, an underlying subtle mockery of him. And, uh, and words that don't even evidence a small amount of faith. There's rejection here. How's Jesus going to respond to this? That's what we'll pick up with next week. It's well past my time here, and I, I need to get closed up so I can get to my, my next meeting. So hope it's been a blessing to you. I've been really looking forward to this chapter, chapter 5. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of Mark, and I hope it was a blessing to you as we studied it together. Let me pray here, and then I'll let you go. Father, we thank you for our time in the Word of God this morning or this afternoon. Uh, chapter 5 is an extraordinary chapter. Uh, Glenn really caught, caught even the contrast between what Jesus says in that Gentile region, Decapolis, and what he says in the heavily Jewish area in the North Shore of Sea of Galilee. That's really a marked contrast. But in all these parts of the narrative stories we've studied, it's faith which produces transformation. And you saw that with that incredible man in Kersey, in the graves. He transformed, sitting with Jesus, clothed in his right mind. We see that woman, 12 years of that menstrual disease issue, flow, blood flow, whatever it was, utterly transformed because she believed that Jesus could heal her. And he called her a daughter of the kingdom, a daughter in the family of God. And then Jairus's daughter, again, he gave her back. He gave her back, 12-year-old daughter, to his parents. Lord, you're a good God, a great God, who does majestic, powerful things. And all the narrative stories of Jesus indicate people who had faith and people whose faith you honored. 
doing a miracle, giving teaching, you begin the process of transformation in their lives too. Thank you that we have been transformed. Indeed, we are being transformed into the image of the Lord Jesus. Uh, I pray that every one of these men is walking in loving obedience with you exuberantly in a robust way, walking strongly as men of faith, men of God who represent you well. Help them to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, we'll see you next week. Take care. Thanks, Jim. You're welcome. Thank you. See you, guys.